This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to Up Next. I'm Marty Lasten, and on this edition, we consider the future of the Catholic Church. My guest is Father Thomas Reese, who just happens to be one of this country's most distinguished church journalists. For seven years, he served as editor-in-chief of a national Catholic magazine called America. And since 2013, he has been a senior analyst with the National Catholic Reporter. He's also the author of several books, including one on the politics of the Catholic Church called Inside the Vatican. And in 2014, President Obama appointed him to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, a bipartisan policy group for which he now serves as its chair. Father Reese, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. Father, I don't know if you're a betting man, but if you had to bet on whether Francis I will go down in history as a truly consequential pope, which is to say a pope who managed to make both a profound and lasting impact on your church, would you bet on that? Or would you bet on those who are standing in his way? Oh, I think I would bet on Pope Francis. You would? Absolutely. I think he's having a significant impact on the Catholic Church uh, throughout the world. Uh, he's, he's giving it a new and different image, uh, a more pastoral image, uh, an image that reaches out and touches people's hearts. The message of Pope Francis is God loves you, God is merciful, God is compassionate, and we should be that to one another. And I think that has a real appeal uh, to people all over the world at a time when we need more love, we need more compassion towards one another, we need more forgiveness if this world is not going to blow itself up. So let's say one bright sunny morning in Rome, the Pope calls a press conference, and at that press conference, he tells the world that he would like to see his church get rid of celibacy as a requirement for the priesthood. That for all of its theoretical value, forcing young men to renounce their sexuality as a condition for ordination has perpetuated a culture of misogyny and dishonesty within your church and as a consequence has done more harm than good. If he were to say that, if... How do you think it would go over? I, I think, well, it depends on what part of the world you're talking about. I think in, 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 certainly in the United States, among the people of God, the people in the pews and the people who don't go to church on Sunday, uh, it would be greeted with, yeah, it's about time. Uh, and in most parts of the world, I think it would be greeted that way. The problem is that how would it be greeted by certain vocal factions within the church, conservative factions, and more importantly, how would it be greeted by the bishops? Francis, I think, is open to the possibility of a married clergy, but that is not the way to rule the church. That's exactly the kind of authoritarian decision-making that he's trying to get us out of. So I think that what he, would, what he would want to do, he wants to hear that voice coming up from, from around the world. You know, say a bishop's conference comes up and says, we need 
married clergy. He's already heard that but, from but some bishops. But you're always going to get that division. I mean, you, you, that's not going to go away, right? Yes, yes, but it makes a difference if you have a process where people are allowed to express their views, allowed to be heard. For example, I think if he wanted to deal with this, he would call a synod of bishops. He would invite bishops from all over the world to come to Rome to talk about this openly and debate it. Even the mere talking about it is a change. I mean, it used in the last two papacies, you couldn't talk about that. If you, know, you, if you were a priest or a theologian or a bishop even and started talking about that, you would be slapped down by the Vatican. Now, Opening that up for discussion is a way that you prepare the church for change. We're a one point, I think, 1.2 billion member organization. We can't turn around on a dime. You have to think through the process of how you do change in the church in a way that brings people along, brings people together. As you know, there are people who insist that clerical celibacy had absolutely nothing to do with the child sex abuse scandal that has caused so much pain and so much turmoil in your church over the last 15 years. But you're not one of those people, are you? No, I, well, I, I, I think it's a mistake uh, to blame uh, celibacy for the sex abuse crisis. Um, when uh, we, we obviously have a huge sex abuse crisis in the United States, uh, not just in the church, but in society in general. Most sex abuse is, occurs in families. Uh, you know, uh, re- uh, male relatives, uncles, uh, stepfathers, and it's mostly heterosexual. I, I think there are good reasons to argue against celibacy, yeah. but I don't think that's Well, let me throw one, one of your own quotes at you. Uh, in May of 2012, uh, you delivered what I thought was a very eloquent keynote address to the Clergy Abuse Conference at Santa Clara University. And in that speech, you talked about the inability of celibate men to ask themselves a very simple question, and that is... How would I feel if my child was abused? Yes. Do you remember that address? Yes, yes. Which is a little different from, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, it had to do with how we dealt with right. abuse. Let me read to you from your address. You said, uh, quote, the inability of celibate men to ask themselves this question blinded them to the consequences of their decisions. They focus on the priests not the victims. Yes, I think that was that was the problem. That was and a that's what major made problem. the scandal as big as it was. I think, right? I think that was one of the contributing factors. The tragedy is we we also see this in families. There's you know so for example if somebody comes and says your brother, you know abused me. The immediate response is denial. And we see this in families when this kind of thing happens. You just can't believe it. And, or even if it's just a friend of yours that, that is accused. You know, somebody you've known for 20 years. You say, oh, this can't be true. And, you know, so you're dealing with priests and another priest is accused. The immediate response is, oh, this can't be true. This, and this is why you cannot... Professional, every professional class 
is terrible at judging its own, mm. whether it's police, lawyers, doctors, or clergymen. That's why you have to have outside people come in, outside people who are neutral, who want to, only want to get to the facts to examine these situations. And that's what we did not have in the Catholic Church. We have this today. Now we have every diocese has a committee uh, that as soon as someone is accused, that is information is sent to the committee. They are to do a preliminary investigation. They're, they act like kind of a grand jury to decide, you know, what should we do with this accusation? Is it nonsense? You know, or is it, is it credible? And, that we, and if it's credible, then this person should be suspended. We should have an investigation uh, th and thoroughly deal with it. That we did not have. It was clerics making decisions about clerics, which is as bad as cops making decisions about cops. Mm -hmm. You know, it occurs to me that the assertions of the traditionalists notwithstanding, the Vatican does reverse itself from time to time. Uh, I mean, for example, back in the 19th century, Pope Pius IX declared that error has no rights. And it was in that spirit that the Vatican opposed, on principle, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, separation of church and state. And so uh, when you look at that history, I, I'm just wondering how much comfort uh, today's reformers can take from that. If you look at the history of the church, you can see a church that is capable of reforming itself. Not as quickly as we would have liked. I mean, I think of all the poor people who had to suffer through these uh, bad things in the church. Tragic things. I mean, the way we treated Jews, in the, you know, the Catholic Church treated Jews. This is tragic. And, you know, and I think John Paul was correct in apologizing for the errors, for the mistakes, for the crimes of the Catholic Church and of people in the Catholic Church. Uh, we are, you know, we are, uh, as we joke, we're a divine institution run by humans. Uh, and, and we make mistakes. And that's, that is part of the charism of, of John Paul and of Francis, that we have to admit that we make mistakes, that we can err, that we can do bad things. And we have to examine our conscience. We have to listen to our critics. That's the great thing about Pope Francis. He is listening to everybody, even the critics of him. And that's what we want in a pope. Well, let's talk about divorce. Uh, pope Francis, I think, has sent some mixed signals on this. But if you look at the broad proclamation on family life that he issued back in April, it does appear that he is at least open to the idea of making it easier for divorced and remarried Catholics to receive communion. But not everyone in your church is crazy about that idea, right? No, no, they're not. I, I have a kind of a different approach to the whole uh, uh, divorce and remarriage uh, issue. Uh, you know, if, if we listen to what Jesus said in, in the Gospels, he was pretty much against divorce. Yes. Now, but I ask myself, okay, why? I mean, Jesus wasn't this kind of rule-oriented guy. Um, he was all about love and compassion and how we treat one another. And so when I look back at the Gospels, and, and, and when some feminists look back at the Gospels, what we see is really the first feminist legislation. Because who was getting divorced? 
It was the women who were being thrown out. The you know, it was the man who was in the position of power. Uh, there were some rabbis who said, if, the, if your wife burns dinner, you can divorce her. Uh, Jesus is saying, no, you can't treat women that way. You know, you have to, just as God is faithful to his covenant with Israel, so a husband has to be faithful to his covenant with his wife, and you can't divorce her. Uh, because she was, she was in that powerless position in a patriarchal uh, society. Well, most of the Catholic Church's life has been in this patriarchal culture where women have been in, the, in a powerless position. And so I think the law against divorce in the Catholic Church protected women. Now, the world is changing. And yet, there are those Catholics who say that this issue, divorce, is, threatens the unity of, the, of your church more seriously than celibacy or ordination of women or any one of a number of issues. One person who says this happens to be a columnist at the, at the New York Times, Ross Douthat. Uh, he is very concerned that uh, this issue uh, represents uh, the, uh, a real danger of, of, of irreparable schism. Do you think he's entirely wrong? Yes. Uh, if you look at the data, the people in the pews are on the side of the Pope. Frankly, they're way beyond the Pope. They think everybody ought to be allowed to go to communion. For them, it's a no-brainer. There are uh, conservative uh, intellectuals. There are uh, conservative bishops. They're very worried about this. Their worry is... It's, it's the same old worry that the Catholic Church always has because we, have, we don't know how to deal with change. You know, if you, if you change something, you admit... The, 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 what they say is, if you admit the church, that the church can change this, what you're doing is you're admitting the church was wrong. Yes. You know, and, and, and therefore, and, uh, and, and once you pull that one brick out of the foundation, the whole building will collapse. I actually wrote a column uh, in response to Ross's uh, columns uh, because it used to be that we progressives were always beat up whenever we disagreed with the Pope. You know, we were accused of being cafeteria Catholics because we picked and chose, uh, picked and chose what aspects of the church we accepted. You know, we, were, we cheered the Pope when they talked about justice and peace. But when they talked about sexual issues, we got all, you know, nervous and said, you weren't quite right. Uh, now, the conservatives are have doing Have a problem that. with papal authority. Yeah, the yeah. conservatives have a problem with papal authority. Right. So, you know, I wrote a column in which I said, you know, Ross, welcome to the cafeteria. You know, because this is what conservatives are doing. It shows how we all pick and choose. Everybody picks and chooses. We have to be in conversation with one another. This is what I like about Pope Francis. He's not excommunicating people because they disagree with him. I think Ross has a right to his views, a right to say what he thinks. I think he's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think we should be in dialogue with one another. He says lots of things I like. Uh, but I think in this area he's wrong. 
One question that Ross Douthat asks with respect to divorce, and I think it's fair to say that he's a conservative, some would call him a reactionary Catholic, but he's certainly a conservative Catholic. But one question he asks is, okay, let's say in the name of compassion, you're going to extend this right to receive communion to divorce Catholics in America. Once you do that, wouldn't you then be obliged to extend that same compassion to polygamous Catholics living in Africa? Well, it, it's an interesting question. Um, and I don't know quite how to deal with it. I mean, I think I'd, I'd like to hear from the African bishops what they think about this. <clears throat> uh, it's, it's funny. We in the United States talk about we should support biblical marriage and only biblical marriage. Well, polygamy was biblical marriage mm -hmm. uh, in the Old Testament. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, in, when, you, when you come into a culture which has something that we don't accept, that we don't think is right, we have to, con we have to challenge it and say, okay, how do we deal with it? Now, if you've got uh, a man who's got three wives and you say, okay, you want to be Christian, you want to be Catholic, we're going to baptize you, but you're going to have to get rid of these three wives, these other two wives. Well, what happens to these two women? What happens? Are they, you know, out on the street? You know, what about their children? What do we do with their children? Are they not going to have a father anymore? I think, you know, we, we have to... We, I've known some bishops who came out of some of those right. families in Africa. So I think... So the slope is slippery. I think that what we, what we have to do is look at a situation and discern what we have, how we act and how we deal with those in a prudential way. There are, you know, to impose the best and perfect way on everybody all at once, immediately, it can be damaging to people. Back in uh, 2015, uh, Pope Francis said that Catholics need not breed like rabbits. Those were his words. And he said that instead Catholics should focus on responsible parenthood. Does that in your mind represent a significant departure from the principles that uh, Pope Paul VI laid down nearly 50 years ago in Humanae Vitae? I think most theologians in the Catholic Church today have come to the conclusion that this is an area where people have to discern. And, and uh, birth control is, would be permitted to be practiced by people who want to pace the, the births. On the other hand, I think we still would come to the conclusion if people don't want children because they want to go to the Bahamas in the winter and they want to you know, go somewhere else in the summer and they want to have a yacht and all of these things. Uh, and they're totally focused on their own individual uh, lives and what's pleasurable. And, or maybe and, they, and just don't, them. they just, parenthood just doesn't interest them. Is that yeah. an immoral choice? <laughs> Sometimes I think, thank God they're practicing birth control because they would be terrible parents. Mm. I mean, that, that may be an honest judgment that sure. you may, you know, but if it's a, it's with with sex and love, you well with sex, you always have to ask the question: Am I doing this out of love, or am I doing this out of selfishness? That's 
You know, that's the question we always uh, have to ask ourselves. I don't think ourselves. these are mutually exclusive categories, do you? Well, I, I'm not saying, is this out of pleasure? <laughs> pleasure and love can go together. Selfishness and love don't necessarily, don't, don't go together. Ah, you really think so? You really think there's a firm line between those I two? Think if, I think, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are hurt by, in sex. Uh, because one party comes into it thinking they're looking for love, the other party's just in for a, a, a you know, a nice grand old time. Sure, but I don't, and, in most cases, and that's what I mean by selfishness. Yeah, yeah. Right, but it, in mo- I think you know, in, in, a, in a large number of cases, it's not an either or. It's not a Manichaean thing. There is an element of selfishness, and there's also an element of altruism in so much of what well, we do as human beings, isn't yeah, there? Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's we would say an element of sin and an element of grace. But, I mean, our, but what selfish. life is about yeah. is reducing the selfishness and increasing the love, you know. And, mm. and are we ever going to perfectly achieve it? No, of course not. But is selfishness, by definition, sinful? I think I'd be pretty close to saying, yeah. I mm. think, you know, because I think uh, what we're called to is love is compassion, is, uh, that's, that's what the gospel is What if is I do compassionate things in part because I want to think of myself as a good person? Isn't that selfish? <laughs> Doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Is yes. it the wrong reason? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is why, this is why we pray. <laughs> this is why we read the scriptures, because the scriptures challenge us on those kinds of things. Let me uh, uh, interject here a little bit more Catholic history. Uh, Back in uh, 1908, the Roman Catholic Church abolished the uh, Congregation of the Inquisition, (laughs) which I think it's fair to say had something of an image problem. Uh, But even today, the, the church, your church, continues to pursue and punish and guard against alleged heretics through what it calls its Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or CDF. And over the years, it has taken disciplinary action against dozens of clerical theologians. Uh, Hans Kung of Switzerland is one example. So was uh, Edward Skilebex of Belgium and Charles Curran of the United States. But at the same time that uh, the Vatican was cracking down on these dissidents, it was also saying that it believed in freedom of expression and freedom of conscience. And, you know, that, that strikes me as a glaring contradiction. Uh, was it? Is it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's a problem that the Catholic Church had after... I mean, it's Second Vatican II. Uh, as, I, you know, as, as people say, the windows were open to have a free debate, free discussion a conversation about the future of the church, the direction it should go in, how should it adapt, how should it reform itself uh, to the times. Uh, This was the conversation that was started at Vatican II. And we who were enthusiastic about Vatican II thought that conversation was going to continue. I think that uh, there were certain people in the church, though, that panicked because... There was, let's face it, there was a lot of chaos in the Catholic Church after the Second Vatican Council. There was kind of this feeling, well, if this can change, anything can change. It's all up for grabs. Slippery slope. Exactly. And I think uh, that's why I think John Paul II kind of put 
a lid on it. I don't defend it. I, in fact, I'm, I, was, I think he was wrong in doing that. It just built up more pressure. Uh, but, you know, you have to have conversation. You have to have debate uh, in, in any institution and especially in the church to, so that we can find... Theologians have to have conversations and debates among each other so that then we can learn and move forward and do things in the Catholic Church. And I think this is what Pope Francis is allowing again. I think the silencing of these theologians was a big mistake. I don't want to abandon this line of questioning without asking you to talk a little bit about the trouble that you had with the CDF. <laughs> At the outset, yeah. uh, as I mentioned, uh, you were the editor of America, which is undoubtedly one of this country's most important Jesuit magazines. Uh, but in 2005, after you were in that job for seven years, you were forced to resign. And according to all the reports that I've read, the man who was uh, uh, a key figure in uh, spearheading your ouster was none other than Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who at the time was the prefect of the CDF and soon afterwards became Pope Benedict XVI. What was that experience like for you? Well, I, I normally don't talk about it. I mean, I don't, uh, you know. It's, it's just not, between it, you and me. It's, it's just, yeah, being, this won't well, leave I mean, My approach is it's not all about me. I'm not the only one who got stepped on. I understand. On. I had very good friends, theologians, who I lived with who had the same kinds of problems and difficulties. I was not surprised. It was, it was painful. Uh, but again, you know, this is, uh, this is something you simply live with. I mean, I'm not the only one person in America who ever got fired. People get fired all the time. You live with it. You, go, you move on. You, go, you, you say, okay, well, now what's the next step in my life that you contribute to? The, the, my, my sadness was that this is the way the church was operating, um, that we couldn't have conversations. We couldn't have a journal of opinion that, that shared. Because I went out of my way. In fact, I published Cardinal Ratzinger uh, in, Amer in America. I published lots of bishops. I, I, published, I tried to publish things that were on both sides. But Ratzinger that, didn't like a lot of the articles no, that you were writing. No, no. And, that's, and that's, that was why you were getting in trouble. This, yeah, and this was, this was the problem of, uh, that the church had at that time. Did you ever feel that your responsibilities as a professional journalist were being pitted against the vows that you took to become a Roman Catholic priest? I didn't think, no, I didn't think that they were, they were in conflict. Um, I always felt that uh, I was supposed to do what I thought was best. At the same time, I live in a community. I, I, I always was, you know, concerned. I was always looking over my shoulder to... Uh, because I did not want to get the Jesuits in trouble. I did not want to get the magazine in too much trouble. Uh, but again, at the same time, I wanted to contribute to the conversation that I thought that the church needed and would be helpful and beneficial to it. But there was no doubt in my mind, if the order came down saying, you're out of here, I was going to salute and move on yeah. you know, to something else. That, that's the commitment I made. 
you know, as as a Jesuit. But you saw no conflict between those two hats. No, the, the, I didn't. The, 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 no, the hat I didn't. you wore as a, as, a, as a journalist, as a professional journalist, and the hat you wore as a Roman Catholic priest who, was, who took a vow of obedience. Well, I, it, it depends what you mean by conflict. I mean, in my soul, I did not think these were in conflict. Other people thought they were in conflict, and that's why I got fired. Uh, so uh, uh, that's the way I dealt with it. Father, thank you so much for doing this program. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Go ahead. Good. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.